This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Apostle Dwayne Harden, who is the founder and lead pastor at the Embassy Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Apostle, welcome to the Rabbi's Husband. Man, thank you so much for having me, Rabbi's Husband. <laughs> thank you. I am I'm so happy that you're, you're here with us today to discuss Psalm 119.89 and Joshua 1.6-9. So please tell us what happens in each of these biblical verses and why they're significant to you. The one kind of changed my life one day. You know, Psalm 119, verse 89, I started a quest, right? You know, back in the biblical times, the, the, the king would have to write out by hand the Torah. That's in the Torah that the king has to, exactly, the king has to write it by hand. He can't outsource it. He has to write it himself. That's in the Torah itself, exactly. He has to write it himself. So you know what I began to do is write out by hand the Torah. So I have with my own hand, written out much of the Old Testament. What was that experience like? It's incredible. I'm going to share that now. One of the things that really changed my life was the details by a written hand, right? And the other part was with my hand, I noticed it got to my heart more. As I began to write, it began to connect with me better, more than just reading it and hearing it. I mean, I... I could tell you, okay, where I didn't pay attention to a, a comma or a semicolon or something like that, it became more detailed in my mind. So you were paying attention to things you otherwise would have missed? I had to. You can't repeat it and not pay attention. Uh, and you're working to not make error. So it's like you're going back and forth, going back and forth. Kind of like remind me of the scribes. It's like you write a piece and you come back. You can't just by memory just write. You got to literally go back and forth. So it was very impacting, which took me to a time where I decided I'm going to write the Psalms. And I started with Psalm 119. Why did you start with Psalm 119? Because it was fascinating to me. The 22 uh, breaks in there of the Aleph Tauf uh, just kind of got me. I wanted to be able to flow with it and kind of break it into sections. Um, and I did that, what, 20 years ago, maybe? Yeah, so that was fascinating. I got to the, to that one verse though, one nineteen verse eighty nine, and it just it just took me out forever. O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. The word settled just got to me. You know what I mean? It was like your word is settled. And you didn't go into the writing of Psalm one nineteen with the realization that this would be significant to you. No, 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 no. I didn't. I ever. Now let me say it this way: I was in anticipation of its significance. Of that particular verse or of something being significant? In anything being significant. Wow. So something was going to speak to you and you didn't know what it was. Right. Every time I put my hand to do it, it's going to speak to me. You know, writing the names of, you know, the history and the people's names and Jacob begat and this one begot, all of that. Like I heard a preacher, Benny Hinn, say, he said, there are no insignificant details in the Bible. Absolutely right. No, nothing's insignificant. Everything, even where like we use the King James Version and it has italicized words there, you know, 
for me, that's significant because that means I can take that word out and try to fit what was the completed thought as opposed to me trying to fit a thought in there. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, what, you know, cause what you're articulating is so important. What you're saying is um, you're acknowledging that you're created in God's image and you want to be careful that you don't create God in your image. Yeah. You know, like uh, in Isaiah, Mark, um, it says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, as high as the heavens are from the earth. Here's the fascinating part. He says, prior to, because you, you, you can't have context without having pretext and post-text to de- determine context. And so up earlier, he says, uh, let the wicked man forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, Right. And then we go down further, and then we find out who he's speaking to. He's speaking to the wicked and the unrighteous. He says, let them forsake their way and their thought. And then we get down there further, and he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, talking to the unrighteous. My ways are not your ways, talking to the wicked. This is Psalm 119. No, no, no. This is Isaiah. Isaiah, right. Okay, okay. And see, that's why Psalm 119 verse 89 means a lot to me, because every time God speaks, it's a settled speech. Everything is settled. It's like it's done. It's and and they come in the form of command. The word is so powerful until even if you don't agree with it, it's going to manifest. You know what I mean? Let there be light. Every force that could have fought him could not fight his words. So light had to come. When we begin to think like God, then I believe that we are now allowing his image to come alive in us as opposed to trying to reimagine God, trying to make God what we want him to be. He is God. He is Yah. He is Yahweh. You know, we're busy trying to change him. And he's saying, just relax. I'll be me through you if you allow me. That's right. And the biblical author must have known that there would be a temptation for us to create God in our image almost all the time, unknowingly. Right. And sometimes with, without bad intention, it's not, everything's not systematically designed, you know, for your destruction. Sometimes it's just like, I try to tell people, Mark, the important thing is to stay out of opinion, bias, and paradigm when it comes to God's word. Because once you feed opinion and bias and paradigm, because like, just imagine, I am from what they call African-American right? If I just follow in the mode of what they have labeled me as African-American, then I'm going to make from my paradigm decisions. And if I'm going to operate in the word of God, I am also going to turn that word into my paradigm if I'm not careful, or my opinion, or my bias. Am I biased towards Christians and, and biased against Jews, for example, and I'll just say while we're here, that creates a problem because now I don't hear what God is saying for the Christian or for the Jew. I'm settled in on my bias. So you're saying in order to, in order to connect with God, you got to get rid of your biases, your opinions, and your paradigm. Yes, absolutely. And that's a hard thing to say, uh, get rid of it, right? But you got to recognize this is my opinion. This is my bias my paradigm. And now I have to take a look at it from a different angle. And acknowledging that it is that it is a temptation to create God in our image. And I think whenever anybody tries to justify a singular political position, right or left, Democrat or Republican, using the Bible, they should ask themselves, am I created in God's image or am I 
accidentally of goodwill trying to create God in my image. Wow. You know, this is this is so powerful because we have a lot of like prophets out who are prophesying one thing and prophesying another thing. Right. But a prophet's job, like I tell people, Baal had his prophets. Right. And so when we talk about Baal and his prophets, they weren't false prophets. They weren't false prophets. They were Baal's prophets. They were Baal's prophets. So they prophesied the mind of Baal, the fertility, the the whole thing around that, right? And when the prophets of Yahweh are to speak, then we're supposed to speak with the thought of God, right? We don't put any room for nothing, no other, no, it's Yahweh, it's God, it's it's Elohim, it's Adonai, it's Him. We can't even speak our own opinion. And a lot of times what we end up doing is speaking our own opinion, which makes us now strong Republican, for example, or strong Democrat, or strong, you know, Orthodox or whatever the case may be, we become so attached to that until we we really detach ourselves from the heart of what God is saying and who he is to us. How often do you come across in, in your work as a pastor where people um, unknowingly just make the mistake of creating God in their image? Does it happen frequently or does it happen infrequently? Like when do people of faith trip over this all the time or not? Every day. You know, one of the things that westernized Christianity, if you will, has done is they've put all the focus on a preacher, right? And so we get the preacher and the people come to hear the preacher. I've been training the people in my church and my children. I have a daughter and grandchildren and I have a ton of godchildren just everywhere, right? And so my thing has been, why did God choose Abraham? He chose Abraham far as I I know, because he said he would teach his children. And here's the deal, Mark, is often we, in, in this culture, send our children to church to be taught, but we don't have it at home where it's like, come on, sit down. You're going to get this. Come on, let's talk. Why did God deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt? How did that happen? How does it apply to today? You know, all of those things, even the, our holidays are uneducational, Christmas, and we go to church to hear about, you know, the birth of Christ, and we have various little things like that, but we don't have what the scripture has given us to keep the feast. The Torah tells us, keep the feast. The purpose of that is to keep it in our mind why these things happen so that we don't go back, Right so that we don't find ourselves in captivity again, so that he doesn't have to say to us, I know the plans that I have towards you, but you're going to be here 70 years. Relax. You get me? It's like, what do we do? And so when, when I go back to what I was saying, we have that where the central focus is on the pulpit and there's not conversation. And I get it. It's been a cultural thing, but I've been working diligently to break that, even where I'm concerned. I love having members in my community who come in and say, well, can I add this to it? You know, this is what I was praying about or reading just the other day in my study the other day. I've been listening to Mark Gerson and Mark said, yes, let's discuss that. This is, I can't corner the market on God's mind, but we can come together from every angle 
and define certain things and, and get better perspective. Fascinating. And uh, getting back to what you're saying before, so I think you've just explained something in the Torah, which I never really understood before, which is why is it so important that the king write his own Torah? And what you're saying is from having done it, it's because you develop a much deeper, much more nuanced, much more detailed understanding of the Torah than if you just read it. Absolutely. The biblical author, the great genius, I mean, it's got to be God. Who else would, nobody else is that smart. Nobody can. <laughs> I mean, so let's just say God. So God who wrote the Torah, he, he must have realized that if I want my children, people to have inculcated his message, what's the best way to do it? Particularly the king who's going to have so much power. He's got to write it because it's a fundamentally different experience, which you discovered by doing it. God told us, be the only person I've met who's actually done it, but you discovered why God told the king to do it. Absolutely. I, I became more intimate with the scripture. I, I think I was telling Daniel the other day, the scripture breathes. It's alive. It has a heartbeat, you know? And I think we have only read it as a logos, that Greek term logos. We've only read it from that angle. So we read it and then we've done our part, but I don't think we've gotten intimate with it, intimate with its breath. It produces life. You know what I mean? Exactly. And, and if you don't see it that way, it's kind of like you, if you don't experience the Torah that way, it's like experiencing a song by reading the lyrics. Could you read the lyrics to the song? Of course you could. Are you going to get the experience of music? No chance. That's a perfect example. Moses introduced worship, not David. But Moses, it was written. It was great, but it wasn't in the rhythm form like David brought. David brought rhythm. He brought instrumentation. He brought Selah. You know, Selah, a lot of people think that just means pause and be quiet. But Selah was really a pause where instrumentation took over for that second. And then there was the completion of thought. You follow what I'm saying? So it was like, all of that made it beautiful. And so all the wonderful worship music we have today, it can get locked up in your heart. And that's one of the reasons, uh, like when you read Proverbs, you see where David was really teaching his son, where Bathsheba was teaching Solomon and they would put songs in him and they would write these songs. And Solomon, he would run around singing these songs, get wisdom and all that getting, get an understanding. You know what I mean? And so when God came to him, Mark, he comes to him in a dream because Solomon is really on the course to losing his way. He's at the high mountain. He's about to do something that's ungodly. And God puts him to sleep and he's like sleeping. And God says, what do you want from me? See, at that point, the only thing he knew what to ask for was what he had been fed through rhythm, through song. And he said, I, I need wisdom that I can lead this great people. I need understanding. I need discernment. Absolutely. Well, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on Joshua 1, 6 through 9. Oh, man, I love Joshua. When you gave me the opportunity, you said pick one. And I told you I, I couldn't pick one. <laughs> it's hard. It is hard. So God comes to Moses and he says, Moses, my servant is dead. And he goes down and he says, uh, my servant is dead. And so what we're going to do is... I'm going to be with you just like I was with Moses, which always intrigued me because Joshua was totally a different character than Moses. Joshua, he was less tolerant um, than Moses. I mean, 
He was all about the promise, getting in the promised land and the inheritance. Whereas Moses was willing to stop, pray with you, you know, the people go wrong. Go, Moses would go to God and say, hold on, back up, don't get them, you know, just those kinds of things. And, and it drove him to a place where he was disobedient. He strikes the rock and he misses out on the promise himself. Can you imagine Joshua seeing all of this and Joshua knowing that's what kept him away? So Joshua has a totally different mindset. So when I hear God says, I will be with you just like I was with Moses, what he was more or less saying is, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be committed to you just like I was committed to Moses. Because Joshua must have had some kind of insecurity knowing that the Bible had just said that there never was and never will be a man like Moses. Joshua must have said, can I possibly lead this people as the initial person in the the promised land? And uh, the answer is, yes, you can. Absolutely. I believe he had a couple issues going on. He just lost his mentor, his, I mean, his leader, the guy that he spent, that he's seen, you know, when God wouldn't allow nobody else to come, he allowed Joshua to come and hang out closer. And he's seeing all of these things. And now it's like, what do I do? I had that happen to me when my mentor, my, like I called him my spiritual father. He was, he turned me and helped me become a man. I mean, I've been doing this since I was a kid, eight years old. I was preaching my first little sermon, you know what I mean? And so forth and so on. And this man comes and he puts structure and order into my mind. And he teaches me, you got to be a man. You got to be a man of your word and all of these kinds of things. So when he died, I was like taken aback. It was like, who's going to help me now? And the Lord came to me almost like he did in this passage here. Just like I am with him, I'm going to be with you. You have a different responsibility, but I'm going to be there. Do you remember the moment that happened? Do I remember the moment that what happened? Let me. When the Lord came to you and said, just as I was with him, I will be with you. Oh, yeah. I was at my apartment at the time on Northside Drive in Atlanta when I got the news of my, you know, my godfather dying. And they called me and they said, are you sitting down? And instantly I kind of knew what was going on. I sat down in my seat. I was numb and I didn't know what to do. And that's when the Lord spoke to me very clearly, like, it's now time for you to arise. Just like I was with him, I'll be with you. So you had a, you had a, Joshua, a Moses Joshua moment. I, I, absolutely. That's why this text means a lot to me. Beautiful. Yeah. And it says here in 1.9, have I not commanded you, rhetorical question, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And that's what you heard. Well, not exactly that. The text, I began to read the Bible Uh, from that standpoint. Let me say it this way. I knew this text before, right? But what would happen is while I'm in the middle of dealing with something, the echo of it came. And it was as real as God speaking to me. Do this. I'm in your corner. I got you. You know, when you read that text, you will see that God spoke to, to Joshua twice, be of good courage. And then he said it to him again, be very courageous. You know, it was like he was reinforcing into him saying, hey, I need you to take courage now. You can handle this. I'm with you. Take courage. Go do this thing. You know, I, I love it. Let me let me read a little bit. Uh, Be strong and of good courage for to this people, you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and what? Very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the Torah, which Moses, my servant, commanded you, do not turn 
from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, right? So this thing, it really produces courage and strength. But I really was looking forward to talking in this little bit of time about the Torah because his focus was on the Torah. And I want to, I know you have people of both sides listening to you. When I say both sides, I'm talking about of the um, Jewish and Christian faith. One of the things that I try to encourage people to understand is that as we um, move the Torah, the Torah, the law is available to us, right? The Torah is not something that's old, antiquated. It is literally a breathing mechanism. Well, that's what it says in the Torah. It says it is not beyond the sea. It is not in the heavens. It is in your mouth and in your heart. Yep, that's it. And so I'm really, really anxious. I mean, when I say anxious, I am anxious to see the Torah come alive. There is a passage, we can talk about this another time, in Matthew where Jesus is speaking, Yeshua speaks, and it seems like he's saying, you know, whatever the Pharisees say unto you, you do it, right? And that's not what it said. It said, whatever he says, talking about Moses when he was talking about the Torah, right? That's when we go back to the Hebrew Matthew, not the Greek Matthew. So understanding that, he then, because he then attacks, because he goes into the Talmud and all of that, he says, their tradition is keeping my word of non-effect, keeping God's word of non-effect. And these are things that I think in the uh, further in the New Testament where Paul begins to speak, Saul, he begins to talk about that the curse of the law has been taken, right? And I think a lot of people think at that point, we're no more under the law. But the scripture says the curse of the law, the curse of the law. Oh, wow. Interesting. So that, that the misunderstanding comes from people not realizing it doesn't say the law, but the curse of the law. The curse of the law. Like when you stop to think about it, you know, if you're homosexual back in the, in the days of the strict law, they could kill you, stone you. If you're a disobedient child, they could kill you, right? That curse, those things are not so much attached to the law right now. But when we decide we want to follow God and follow the Torah, the law becomes very real to us. Wow. So how did you develop um, such, I mean, you're famous for the following. How did you develop such a love of the Jewish people, of Jewish teachings, and of the Jewish state. Was it something you were brought up with or was there a particular moment when it all hit you or was it a more gradual process? Well, technically, Mark, I am part Jew, Hebrew. It's in my DNA. I have family from Ethiopia, so forth and so on. And so I am that guy. The other part is, and we could talk about this another time and offline, but the other part is when I came to discover the essence of it, and I, I, I was in Israel with uh, Bishop Robert. Right, Robert Stearns, yeah. Right, and I, uh, I remember the uh, foreign affairs minister asked me a question, and it put me on a stride to discover more. I never had a hatred for Jewish people. In fact, everything about my upbringing is Jewish. What do you mean? All I grew up on was the Bible. What was the question that the minister of foreign affairs asked you? He asked me, he's African-American, how does African-Americans feel about Jewish people? And it was a little bit deeper and we had the discussion, but 
he was, I guess, concerned uh, on some points, right? And that we'll discuss offline. I was totally sent on a tailwind. But what thing I told him, what I did tell him, as I said, it's hard for you to separate Christian Black people from Jewish anything. When I grew up, we were in church all day. It was a part of our nature. It was like, unfortunately, the Sunday, because of slavery, Sunday became our worship day. But originally it was Saturday, Sabbath, Shabbat, right? I didn't know that. How, how, did, how did slavery change the, uh, the celebration of Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday? I mean, a lot of it, uh, don't forget these, these people were from parts of Africa as well. I mean, they were there. Service was on Saturday. In fact, you can go to Zambia now, and Shabbat is a big deal. And it's on Saturday? On Saturdays, yeah. And you go to Zambia, uh, you'll find that they literally, on Passover, they put blood on the doorpost from the lamb. Wow, right out, right out of Exodus. Right out of Exodus. I mean, seriously. So you got that culture. You're being forced to come over here. Saturday was the time. And then they moved to Sunday because they didn't have to slave on on Sunday. And that's where they end up dressing up. So you see Black people dressing up for church. Most of that was because they were putting on their Sunday best because people, that's the only time they could put on something decent and feel good. You know what I mean? It was um, very, very interesting dynamics attached to this whole thing. But Sunday became our day of worship all day. And the westernized mindset kind of peeped in. And so we became people of an hour service and all of those kinds of things. But we had Sunday school, we had church service, then we had dinner that we spent together with everyone. We then came back and what we had, like the young people would break off from the adults. So the adult had a Bible class and a further Bible class. That Sunday was spent deep in the scriptures, just deep. Everything I, the stories and I tell people that's one thing that we need to learn, learn the stories over and over and over. And the stories became a key component to understanding the thought of God, the heritage, all different things like that. It became a major, major player. Wow. So what do you do for Shabbat now? Instead of having Sunday service, we have uh, service on Shabbat. On Saturday? Yeah. Yeah. On Saturday. So the whole church is basically celebrating the Jewish Sabbath. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no Sunday service. What do you do on Friday night? Friday night is uh, Shabbat. So you have Shabbat dinner with your family on Friday night? Shabbat dinner. We The whole thing is learn to do that. We like the candles. You know, we're a people who want to follow the whole thing of God. Do you know what I mean? Well, you're doing it. Thank you for all you do. And thank you for such a fascinating discussion on two extraordinary biblical passages from the Psalms and from the book of Joshua. Now, the concluding question on the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says in the book, he said, I just ran to a man with whom I served in the war. Um, he said he saved a lot of Jews and become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. <laughs> I love it. Uh, me too. So in all of your years as of being um, a pastor and a religious leader to so many, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? The, number one, there is more with you than there are against you. Why do people need to be told that? Do people think there are more against them than there are with them? Absolutely. In what context do people think that? Media, 
we live in a world right now where your your TV determines everything, your phone, your stuff, and it makes you feel like people are against you. If you don't have enough likes on the comments or comments in there, make you feel like people don't like you. Um, they're more with you. Every time I meet somebody, you know, like I meet a Jewish person, they don't always like me, or I meet a a white person, they don't always like me, or I meet a uh, Islamic person, they don't always like me. My mind can tell me when the reality of it is sometimes they just aren't that interested in the things that we've made a priority and they really do care. They will fight for you. You know what I mean? They will step in. They will feed you. There are more for you than there are against you. I can't imagine, you know, seeing a person who celebrates Allah and see them hungry and not do anything for them. Right. So we underestimate the number of people who are with us and we overestimate the number of people who are against us. Obviously, and sometimes there are exceptions to that, but generally that's a mistake that we make. Exactly. That's a big mistake. And my second thing would be once you free people to think, help them to learn to think, you'll be surprised at the phenomenal people that are around you. Great. Drill down on that one. So what exactly do you mean by that? Once you free people to think. When I was in college, I had a professor. He was six foot 10 inches. He played basketball for Georgetown University. His name is Homer Warren. He was a brilliant man. He taught me marketing. And in the marketing class, he did different things. The class was not a, a memorizing course. It was a course of thinking thinking. So he would create scenarios, teach you principles, and then give you a test. And the test, you passed the test by thought. You had to think, right? So when I went to get my master's, he wrote a recommendation, reference rather. And in the reference, he sent it to me eventually. And he says, Mr. Harden is one of the greatest thinkers I've ever had. And he says, my class was always built around thought. It was never built around memory. And he said this, he says, if we had more thinkers, people would be more responsible, accountable, and powerful, right? So what I have done is taken some of his methodology and begin to implement it in church, implement it in my day-to-day affairs, teaching people to think, challenging them to think, Sometimes as a leader, I can, make, I can make a statement and it sounds like it's a definite, you respond to me and do what I say. But I've always created, tried to create an environment to where I say, hey, I'm telling you what I think or what I think I want. Share your thoughts with me because you find so much genius inside of people when you open them up to think with you and to share thoughts. Beautiful. Well, Apostle Harden, thank you so much for such a fascinating and magnificent conversation. I'm the rabbi's husband, and thank you uh, most of all for your dear friendship. I'm coming there soon, like we talked about. Oh, anytime. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com 
or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.